On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Alex DePrima about Spurgeon and the poor. So we talk about all sorts of things like what is mercy ministry according to Spurgeon? How would he think of it in the framework that we see today or even just in the mission of the church in general? How in the world does Spurgeon have time to focus on anything besides preaching, giving the size of his ministry? Why did Spurgeon think the church was the key vehicle for things like benevolence? And would this be impacted by the size of his church or other aspects? Did Spurgeon get any sort of pushback from his fellow Baptists in London on these matters? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. We think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. Uh, we oftentimes think that the church just gives unserious answers to all sorts of serious problems that we engage in, and we want to help encourage people to give the right sort of answers and the right and give the right amount of thought to those sort of things. So one way we've tried to explain what does that look like is by saying we want to create or stimulate or encourage an intellectual culture that values things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. I think the piece of like critical thinking, yeah, that makes sense to most everybody. Uh, charity usually makes sense. I say charity doesn't mean that you have to like give up on what you believe. It doesn't mean you have to let smooth over everything and pretend differences don't exist. It just means um, giving that right hand uh, of fellowship to those who may differ in some particular ways. Um, So yes, I know you disagree, but we can still be friends anyway. Um, We may have issues and let's, let's talk about them and let's explore them. Let's understand them. And it also means uh, fairly representing other people uh, and understanding what they're trying to say. And then obviously we bring in that sort of cheerful confessionalism piece. I think that fits nicely with the charity where, yes, we want to be robust in our confession. Uh, we want to be robust in what we believe and what we confess about, about God in the world. And yet we want to do it with a disposition of cheer that isn't a curmudgeonly sort of uh, approach to things, but one that is happy. Uh, today, I am excited to reintroduce all of you uh, who are regular listeners of the podcast, Alex DePrima. Uh, those of you who are new to the podcast, what I need to tell you to do is go back and listen to all the episodes we've done with him. We've done several of them, so I'll go find them and link to them for you so you can click the, the show notes and go listen to them because I think Alex is awesome for a couple of reasons. One of them is because uh, he's a caring uh, pastor of a local congregation, but also he does these great authorships of books, and he's thinking at a high level about all sorts of different things. And today we're going to be talking about Spurgeon and the poor. So if you don't know his dissertation related to Spurgeon and social activism, uh, this one is coming out from Reformation Heritage Books. And I think by the time you listen to this, it should be out. Let me look. Yep, February 8th. And Amazon tells me that it's temporarily out of stock. So all that tells me is that this book is so popular that you have to go buy it immediately. Get your hands on it right now. Um, anyway, this is going to be a lot of fun. So Alex, before we jump into the topic, tell me a little bit about yourself uh, again for those who aren't familiar with you, and then we can jump into the book. Well, let me just thank you, Jordan, for having me on. I love the work of the London Lyceum. I'm a regular listener and um, have so enjoyed the past conversations we've been able to have. I also appreciate you guys are suppliers of 
three of like the scarcest resources in the world, uh, critical thinking, charity, and cheerful confessionalism. I think that um, those things are in short supply and you guys have modeled those virtues well. So thank you guys for that. And I'd love, I'd love to say it were true that Amazon is out of stock of my book because it sold so well. They actually haven't gotten their supply yet. So, so the book technically was released through Reformation Heritage, I think on February 8th. And they've got the book right now. So whenever you're listening to this, uh, they've had it since then. And uh, it's just not gone live on Amazon yet. Uh, but maybe as a result of this interview, who knows? It'll it'll sell out on Amazon and uh, that'll, that'll be relevant again. Uh, yes, I'm a local church pastor. Uh, I grew up in a confessionally reformed setting in South Florida, converted when I was about 10 years old through the preaching of the gospel in my own local church, uh, aspired to ministry in my teenage years, went to Clemson University for college, got a degree in financial management, all the while aspiring to ministry. And uh, that began to be affirmed more and more by pastors and mentors in my life and the local churches I was a part of. Uh, and then was eventually uh, sent out uh, with a team to plant a church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We officially covenanted as a congregation, uh, Emanuel Church of Winston-Salem, Emanuel with an E. Uh, in what would have been August of 2017, we covenanted together with 17 charter members. It's an incredible day. And uh, so we've been here ever since. Uh, along the way, I was able to uh, do my MDiv at Southeastern Seminary. It was about midway through my doctoral studies when we planted Emmanuel, and then completed those in the first year or two of our time there. And since then, I mean, my primary work is preaching uh, the word week by week and shepherding the flock of God here and seeking to uh, serve alongside our elders. Uh, so I'm, I'm a pastor. That's my, my primary work. Uh, married to Jenna, have three kids, uh, love our family, and thankful for God's good gifts and family. And then, uh, and then I do, with the little bit of headspace I have left, I do writing on the side. And uh, that writing has focused so far, for the most part, on uh, the uh, ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was the subject of my doctoral studies at Southeastern. And, um, and so the book that just came out is Spurgeon and the Poor, How the Gospel Compels Christian Social Concern, which is a book that is about, I'd say about 80% description. You know, what did Spurgeon teach? What did he say? And what did he do? And about 20% pastoral prescription, trying to say, okay, here are the principles he was working with. Here were the ideals he was trying to uh, forward and advance in his own context. How could we in our day uh, be faithful to those same biblical ideals and principles? Um, and so it definitely is a work of historical retrieval and also a work that I hope will be helpful to pastors and even lay people as they think about how to be busy about the work of social ministry and good works in their own local churches. Yeah, that, that's helpful. I, you know, one thing I love is when we talk to, to pastors uh, on the podcast, I know most of our guests have some sort of terminal degree, a PhD, something like that. Um, but it's like, you know, some, I don't know what the percentage is, 40, 60, 50, 50, something about who are pastors. And there's always a, a nice shape to pastors in how they think about these topics that's been shaped, I think, fundamentally by their pastoral concern and shepherding and also that regular preaching and teaching ministry. Um, so I always enjoy these interviews, especially, particularly when it comes to topics like this. I mean, you have a unique vantage point of thinking about it and asking those sort of practical questions that uh, are a launching point from let's let's think about the history. Tell me a little bit, I know your dissertation 
Spurgeon and social activism. Just give me, this doesn't have to be a long answer. I'm just curious, how is this book like a launching pad from that research that you did there? Is it overlapping in a significant degree? Uh, how is that related to the previous yeah. research? Yeah, so the, the previous research was uh, certainly broader than the book uh, with the Reformation Heritage and far more technical and academic. So Spurgeon and the Poor is an effort to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. And I'd say probably 30 to 40% of it is borrowed from my dissertation. The rest would be more original stuff. And uh, definitely has a more pastoral voice to it than the voice of a scholar. Now, that said, you know, it's got, I don't know, 600 footnotes or so in it. So for historians and scholars that want to sort of trace the steps of my, my academic work, uh, they will have kind of that trail left behind for them. But um, but I've been delighted to know of, of folks who have read it. I, I deliberately uh, had the book passed around to uh, lots of different folks, uh, deacons in churches, homeschool moms, uh, a couple of college students. They found it very accessible, and that was really encouraging to me. And I, I, that, that seems to be what's happening since the book has been released. Uh, the dissertation was working within the framework of the Bevington Quadrilateral, which has probably been talked about on the podcast before. Bevington talks uh, provides a kind of descriptive framework for understanding evangelicalism as a movement with four key kind of genetic traits, uh, or, or um, yeah, even even uh, uh, doctrinal points of view. Uh, one, of course, would be biblicism, a commitment to the authority and inspiration of the Bible. Another would be crucicentrism, that is the centrality of the cross and the atonement in our preaching of the gospel. Uh, and then conversionism, which would be an emphasis on new birth as a prerequisite for true saving faith, uh, true Christian life. And then uh, what he calls activism, which would be, uh, he describes it in various ways, as kind of an eagerness to be up and doing, to spread the gospel, to engage in works of uh, uh, mercy ministry and benevolence and to spread the faith and to develop institutions and agencies and ministries that, you know, meet various areas of, of need uh, socially and otherwise. And so I was working with Spurgeon's ministry through the lens of activism. Uh, uh, what was his evangelical activism like? And so that got me talking about things like uh, evangelism and church planting and missions, and then a lot in the space of social ministry. So benevolence, mercy ministry, uh, political activism, social activism, things like that. So that was kind of the, the academic project. The book now is more narrowly focusing in on the relationship between the gospel and social ministry, word and deed. And how did Spurgeon speak into those issues? How did he see social ministry uh, working itself out in the life of the individual Christian and in the ministry and mission of the local church? Um, and the, the long and short of it is, is he viewed it as essential not merely preferable or optional, like, like we may think in our churches, whether or not we're engaged in social ministry or mercy ministry. We can. Some churches do that. Some churches don't. As long as we're preaching the gospel, that's good. Spurgeon would not be at home with that idea. He would say, no, mercy ministry and engagement with needy people in a material way is essential to the church's uh, ministry and essential to the Christian life as sort of an outflow of the gospel of, of grace. Okay, that. Very helpful. There's a lot of things I want to ask about this now. Uh, so let, maybe I begin with, just tell me a little bit about the shape of mercy ministry for Spurgeon. Because I imagine there's probably a significant amount of contemporary American churches that probably aren't even familiar with the terminology of mercy ministry or benevolence ministry. So just give me a little bit about what that might look like. 
Well, okay, so for the Metropolitan Tabernacle, the church that Spurgeon pastored, it was originally the New Park Street Chapel, changed its name to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in 1861 when the church moved to a new location in South London. By 1884, the church had 66 benevolent institutions operating out of the church that addressed and encompassed practically every area of human need. So there was a very significant orphanage that served 500 children at any given time, uh, free education in the evenings for working class people, uh, Sunday schools and ragged schools. So these are like schools in the community. The Sunday schools would be on Sundays and they would be in the afternoons and they would be for the religious instruction of working class kids all around London. And then the ragged schools would provide more like reading, writing, arithmetic, uh, charitable uh, uh, schooling and education for kids. Uh, it, it wasn't until I think around 1870, 1871, that there was a system of public education in uh, England. And so before then, you depended on what they called voluntary schools or ragged schools or Sunday schools to help with that work. Uh, he's got ministries to police officers, to prostitutes, to the blind. Uh, he's got subsidized housing for poor widows annexed to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I mean, it's sort of everything you think of, a clothing bank, a food pantry, all kinds of stuff they were engaged in. And Spurgeon, for his part, if you ask for the shape of his view of mercy ministry, he believed this marked God's people in the Bible, that they served needy people and sought to meet the material and physical needs of the poor, the needy, the afflicted. And it has marked God's people throughout church history. In the earliest centuries of the church, it was Christians who founded hospitals in the first place. You know, uh, the infanticide walls where children were left to be exposed to the elements. Uh, it was Christians who were rescuing them. Um, I mean, there's a glorious tradition of Christians, particularly serving vulnerable children uh, throughout the centuries. Uh, you look at the Reformation era. Uh, many of the reformers in their confessions are including statements about how there should be systems organized to serve poor people in the various parishes. Um, you have John Calvin in Geneva, Luther in Germany, setting up mechanisms to help needy people. Certainly in the Evangelical Awakening, uh, you have the founding of orphanages, all kinds of coordinating agencies and ministries to address different aspects of social need and social ministry. So he's saying this is just what Christians do. Uh, those who have been regenerated by the grace of God uh, become themselves gracious in their attitude and disposition toward other people. They are, uh, in their very regenerate nature, compassionate, generous, kind, given to the kinds of good works our Lord commends uh, in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Paul speaks of Titus in, in Titus 2.14 of Christ redeeming a people who are zealous for good works, those being good works of benevolence that are profitable for people, that meet cases of urgent need, chapter 3 tells us. Uh, he's going to say those kinds of things, Jordan, for you and me, should be part of basic Christian character. They marked the Lord Jesus. It's a constitutive part of the the regenerate nature brought about by new birth. And therefore, he had no hesitation in calling his people uh, to give themselves the benevolence and charity on behalf of the needy, not in a way that replaces the primary mission of the church to preach the gospel and build healthy churches, but in a way that sort of flows out of that preaching of the gospel and commends the witness of that gospel uh, to the surrounding community. So that's kind of the shape this took in Spurgeon's own life and ministry. That's helpful. And you mentioned you thought, I guess Spurgeon thought it would be a necessary part of the mission of the church in some sense. Maybe explain that to me a little bit. Just given our own cultural context, our current moment, 
I wonder if there are people who look and say, look, no, no, that reminds me of something like social justice or whatever, yeah, and I'm going to go yeah, look right. at the, the statement on social justice and the gospel and tell you, no, that should not be a part of the mission of the church. It's something that's, yes, do good things, but that should not be resting with the church. So explain to me, how does this fit with the mission of the church? Yeah, sure. So so if I could say something about the mission of the church and then something about how we might frame this in our own context that might might make it a little more intelligible what Spurgeon's saying and doing. So Spurgeon absolutely believes the primary mission of the local church is to preach the gospel, make disciples, and build healthy local churches. It's principally a spiritual mission. He was a vigorous opponent of Christian socialism. He was definitely an opponent of what it wasn't really called the social gospel yet, but the idea was inchoate. It was it was present but not fully materialized yet. And he critiqued severely and so did his disciples. So the, so the what became the social gospel of maybe the next generation after Spurgeon's death in 1892, he's already critiquing. So he's not a social gospel guy. He's not with Walter Rauschenbusch. He's not about, hey, let's bring the kingdom of heaven on earth and transform society. Let's get rid of, let's alleviate all poverty and suffering. That's what we're to be about. He's not saying that. The, the, the mission of the church is to preach the gospel and build the church. But what he is going to say is when it comes to mercy ministry, and compassion and kindness and generosity and benevolence toward needy people, uh, this is not an optional thing for the church. This is part of doing and being all that the church ought to be. The church is meant to be, as Jesus calls it to be in Matthew 5, a city set on a hill and a light to the nations, that people might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's saying a church that doesn't exist in part to serve needy people in this world and to be marked by these good works of benevolence and charity, that's not a true church. It's not a Christian church in any meaningful sense. God's people are like the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. God's people are a people zealous for good works, Titus 2.14. God's people are those who are eager to remember the poor, as Paul was eager to do in Galatians 2. God's people are those who do good to all, I mean, especially the household of faith, but also to all, Galatians 610. They're those who give themselves to true religion, James tells us, James 127, uh, which is to uh, help widows and orphans in their distress. So he's going to say, if you bear the mark of Christian church, these things are going to mark you. So it's like saying being holy is part of the mission of the church. Um, being uh, 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 evangelistic is part of the mission of the church. Um, if you, If part of the mission of the church is to Let's say we summarize it by the Great Commission. That's how Kevin Young and Greg Gilbert summarize it in their book, What is the Mission of the Church? Which I think Spurgeon would largely affirm to the T. He's going to say, well, part of observing all that Jesus commanded you, Matthew 28, 20, I believe it is, would be giving yourselves to the kind of good works of benevolence and charity and love for neighbor that are to mark the Lord's people. So that's how mercy ministry gets into this idea of the church's ministry and mission. It's downstream of the main thing, but it's nonetheless an essential and necessary thing. That needs to be present in the life of the church. Now, we trip up over this in our own context today because there's been a lot of water under the bridge since 1892 when Spurgeon died. So you do have Walter Rauschenbusch and the social gospel where, you know, basically what happens there among many liberals and modernists is orthodoxy is sort of completely hollowed out of anything other than sentimental love for a neighbor. I mean, if there's no such thing as a hell that people go to, and there's no such thing as substitutionary atonement. What's left of the Christian faith and, I guess, doing social good? Maybe there's a social ethic there worth maintaining. Um, and so 
I speculate, so I hope some folks will read the appendix at the end where I try to situate Spurgeon in historical perspective. I think um, I, I speculate that conservative evangelicals, Jordan, have been gun shy about social concern and mercy ministry, in part because they view it now in the last hundred years as an impulse of liberalism. The liberals are those who are fixated and obsessed with, you know, social concern, social activism. We're the Bible people, the truth people who recognize there really is a heaven and hell. We labor for eternity, not just for building the kingdom of heaven on earth. And um, and so when you have a young person in your church or a man or woman in your church who's really passionate about some social ministry in the community, you begin to think, oh, that kind of smells like liberalism. That's kind of where that comes from. Whereas I think if you look at Spurgeon in historical historical perspective, there's nothing anomalous about him in that respect. He's just doing what Christians in the early centuries of the church were doing. He's doing what the reformers were doing. He's doing what early evangelicals were doing. It's only since we have a lot more cultural and social baggage that's kind of glommed onto this conversation that makes it harder for us to talk about this, and and none more so than what we've seen in the last five or six years. So you mentioned the statement on social justice, you know, MacArthur and those guys with that statement. You know, I think that Spurgeon would probably agree with most of it. I haven't read it in a little while. But I think he'd say, you're not saying everything you should say. It's his, his, his qualms with that document, if I could speculate, would be less about what's said and what's, than what's not said. Okay, but, but what about the need for the church to be known for doing good to all, to engaging in good works that help needy people? How is that to be done? Isn't that a large part of the work we're supposed to do? Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm writing an article right now, Reformation Heritage <laughs> As I read an article, you know, what is, is, um, what is it about? Was Spurgeon woke? Um, you know, I mean, how do you answer that question? It's an anachronistic question, right? Well, Spurgeon wasn't woke. He didn't see, you know, social oppression and systemic injustice around every corner. Um, but at the same time, he was vigorously devoted to doing good for poor and needy people. And he's very interested in conversations about how we can do that. Um, and I, so I think there's a corrective there to folks on the left and the right. To those on the left, don't, don't drift missionally. The mission is to spread the gospel and the power of the Spirit and make disciples, build churches. To those on the right, don't forget this is a necessary and essential and vital work of engaging benevolently, generously, with a merciful heart to help poor and needy people as a way to bear witness to the grace of God, the character of God, and to commend the witness of the gospel. That's helpful. So would you say, say Spurgeon's approach, I mean, is that just sort of a standard way to think about mercy ministry? I know you mentioned others like Calvin and, and Geneva and others. Like, is he just kind of like in a steady stream of how we think about mercy ministry and how we do it? Except the anomaly would be he's at a very large church that has a lot more ability to do particular things than a small rural church might. Yeah. Yeah. What's anomalous about him is the scale. I think you're exactly right. And just, you know, everything with Spurgeon is bigger and brighter and grander and louder, you know. So he's a real champion for needy people. Um, there were plenty of people in England who were opposed to slavery in the American South uh, in Spurgeon's day. But he's the one who's going all in and making the most dramatic, you know, kind of statements. He, he comes across as positive, positively heroic in that whole affair. Um, but yeah, I think what, what I try to argue in my dissertation is that Spurgeon is in direct continuity with the evangelical tradition on this issue. 
And um, I don't bring this up at all in the dissertation. But what I suggest in the book is that is an aspect of the evangelical tradition that isn't lost per se, but is being neglected somewhat in our day. And I just want to say as a Christian pastor now, Jordan, I completely understand that uh, given what's occurred uh, socially and culturally in our own context in the last hundred years. I mean, even just having a system of social welfare complicates the discussion. In Spurgeon's world, they didn't have that. The church, the church's largesse was was going to be the principal means through which social aid came to the neediest people. Well, that's not how it is in America, at least anymore. So that complicates the discussion. But then you have, yeah, we want to call it the social justice movement, wokeism, critical race theory, all that kind of stuff. It complicates the discussion. What does it mean to do social good, benevolent good? in our context today that takes that takes a lot of consideration to kind of get to the bottom of that i want to know spurgeon how in the world does he have time to even think about mercy ministry given his other responsibilities like what is this how does he apportion his time um well uh, i i uh look to that a little bit in the book itself includes some statements from him so one of the things I'll say, Jordan, that I, I'm very surprised. Man, I, I studied Spurgeon on a scholarly level for about five years, um, and I can tell you, I still don't really understand how he did all that he did. I, I don't get it. I, I, the man, the the numbers don't add up. And we we kind of joke about this. I, I text often with Jeff Chang from Midwestern. He's a good friend. We're working on some stuff together. Ray Rhodes, who's written some great stuff on Spurgeon, and. Uh, other scholars in that arena. And we all kind of joke about it. Like, <laughs> there's something we're missing. <laughs> Something's not adding up with this guy. But I, I think a couple of things could be said. One thing that I think might be a, both a relief to pastors or theologians listening to this, and um, a real help to them in how to implement what Spurgeon was doing, is that he made regular use of sort of others' input, contributions, and initiatives. So I mentioned 66 benevolent institutions at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in 1884. He didn't start all those by a long shot. He was very responsive to the initiatives of his members. And he was kind of the gatekeeper for that, for the church. So everybody's got ideas, right? And I'm I'm a pastor. I get emails all the time. Can we promote this? Can we do that? You know, well, he took the very best works from his members and then put the full weight of uh, uh, sort of his influence as the, the, the main pastor behind those things and pushed as hard as he could. So even the orphanage, that wasn't his idea. A wealthy widow came to him with 20,000 pounds and said, I want to invest this for this cause and I want you to be uh, the organizer of it. You know, uh, Several of the ministries started in that way. Hey, we want to start a, a, a street mission in uh, Bethnal Green. Uh, and with the church get behind giving us resources to do this and send one of the men from the pastor's college uh, to preach on Monday mornings at the food pantry or whatever. And he would get behind those kinds of things. So he's he's receiving lots of contributions and help from his members and trying to release them to do the work. And he's cheerleading a lot for it. So that's one aspect of it. But the final thing I'll say, Jordan, is he just loved being about this stuff. He spent all his Christmases with his orphans. He wanted to be with them. Like, I, I don't know when, when you you and I are both pretty busy guys. But you have that experience every now and again. You see some margin in your schedule. Hey, I have like three hours uncommitted on Friday morning. Oh, my goodness. What am I going to do with that? You know, where a meeting gets canceled. He's thinking, oh, great. I can hop in the carriage and I could run over to the orphanage and visit a few kids in the infirmary. 
and bring them, you know, a pair or something. That's how, I mean, he's like Santa Claus in some ways. It's crazy. So, you know, he, 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 um, is growing flowers in his garden. He loved nature. He's growing this lush garden in his house so he can clip these flowers and send them to patients in the nearby hospital to brighten up their day. He buys 10 cows so he can milk them and give all the proceeds from the milk that's sold in the local market to a needy widow uh, down the road from him in his neighborhood. That's just the way the guy was. And so if you love something, you give yourself to something, you kind of find time to do it. Um, that was that was where where his heart was at. This wasn't something he begrudged. It's something he was eager to do, wanted to do, and he didn't. You know, he he was he was finding time, what ways he could to give himself to that kind of work. Well, another question that I have, we've mentioned a little bit. You you talked about how the last ten plus years has complicated this sort of discussion a little bit. At, when we try to think about Spurgeon in this context, and try to think about sort of how that impacts today. I mean, why does Spurgeon think the church is the key vehicle for benevolence? And then I want to know the complicated stuff. How, what does that look like for today? If if he had a system of welfare where he around, you know, in in London, would that change the shape of his his view of mercy ministry? Would he say, "You know what? They've got that taken care of. I'm going to focus on something else." Or would he still say, look, I still think the church is the primary means of doing these things, so I'm going to try to partner or circumvent or do something else with it? Yeah, that's such a good question. And you're asking me to speculate historically. So That's my I, favorite I thing to ask, just for the record. <laughs> I love to make people, historians especially, I, mean, they, I know they start squirming every time you make them speculate, but it's my favorite yeah, yeah, thing yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah, would Spurgeon have voted for Trump? Would he have been, you know, that, that's a question you love to answer, right? Uh, okay, so you're, you're, you're forcing me to nuance this a little bit better, Jordan. It's a great question. I don't know that Spurgeon would say the church has to be the primary, or I should say, he certainly does not think the church has to be the exclusive vehicle for benevolence and social work. And I don't even know that he would say it has to be the primary vehicle for social work. So, for example, to use a very practical example, I mean, he, he wants legislative reform. Uh, he advocates for uh, uh, children, young people, poor people, working class people in terms of like factory conditions. So this is the industrial age in London, in England. Uh, the Great Exhibition was in 1851. He gets to London in 1854. Progress, advancement, they're the watchwords of the day. And you have uh, kids working, you know, as eight, nine, ten-year-olds uh, in factories for 16 hours a day. And he wants the laws to be changed, and he ad ad advocates for that. So he thinks the government has a place to help needy people and to create contexts that work for human flourishing. Uh, he also supports in 1870 the bill for public education. Uh, so he's going to continue to have Sunday schools and ragged schools that are church sponsors. But he also thinks the system of public education is a good thing. So he's not going to say the church is the exclusive agent uh, to do good in, in those kinds of ways. He's going to embrace some degree. I don't know. Can we call public schools a kind of social welfare? I guess we can. Um, he's going to say that that has a place in a, a good and just society. Uh, but now, I'm sorry, your second question, the more complicated stuff, what would he do in an environment like that? Like, how would he, you know, um, I don't think he would, he would forfeit 
that ground entirely to the secular governmental schools or social programs, things like that. What he's most interested in, Jordan, though, is not necessarily just the outcome that kids are educated, uh, that poor people are not taken advantage of, that um, the capitalist system doesn't become oppressive. I think in generally favored capitalism, but he didn't want it to become oppressive and inhumane. He's going to say, look, at the end of the day, though, what I'm most interested in is Christians being faithful to what they see in the Bible. He's concerned about Christian witness. He's concerned about vindicating the Christian gospel and vindicating the teaching of the Lord Jesus. So he's going to say, what I'm most interested in is in the church shining as brilliantly and brightly as it can uh, in terms of showing forth the character of God and the veracity of the gospel and the power of grace in the individual Christian. So I think he'd say, no matter what our culture is doing, I want the church to be everything it is called to be. I want Christians to be everything they are called to be. I want Christian principles and Christ's precepts and commandments followed ultimately to advance the mission and to advance the cause of Christ and to vindicate the truths of scripture. And if that leads to more and more people being fed and more and more people being helped and great. Um, what That can be done in a context where there is a mechanism for social welfare or in a context where that's not being done. But what he's most interested about is is not uh, discernible metrics or social metrics you know, to improve society, though that's welcome. He wants the church to be and do all that it is called to be and do. And he sees part of that being benevolence and mercy ministry and social engagement. Yeah. So in our context today, it seems like if you hear people talking or emphasizing ministry for the poor, those sort of things, you begin to associate things with them, rightly or wrongly, of like partisan politics sort of somehow going hand in hand with that. So I'm wondering, is this the same for Spurgeon? Would people look at him and say he's he's a partisan in particular ways when it comes to uh, just general, I guess, ministry to the poor or political ministry to the poor in particular ways. Um, and if he is, is it wise for a pastor to be that outspoken about those sort of things in today's yeah. current co- context? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Spurgeon is politically partisan in that he is very public about his vote. He's public about who he's voting for. So the two big parties in those days were the Tories and the Whigs or the conservatives and the liberals. Don't be conservative and liberal in the way we think about that today. Spurgeon was a liberal, but the liberal program would map on more so to kind of the conservative party and platform in this country today, insofar as that's uh, analogous or applicable. Um, but, so you're uh, saying so he, would... he would be QA not? <laughs> <laughs> no, I would not say that. <laughs> uh, he, he favored meritocracy, personal responsibility, religious freedom. Uh, uh, liberty more broadly, um, classical liberal principles, uh, those sorts of things, uh, free and open markets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but uh, he, but he did. So he w- he believed very strongly you should not bring politics into the pulpit. Now, if if we're talking about slavery, that's an obvious religious concern. The Bible speaks about man stealing. So I think he'd say today the Bible speaks about murder and abortion is a form of murder, and he'd probably talk about it that way. Um, so big, glaring wickedness he would speak to. And he'd say, this is where politics is kind of on our turf. You know, if it's about the best mechanism, you know, to address immigration, I think he'd probably be pretty reserved in, in comments on that. But the typical issues he spoke out against publicly would have had to do with kind of gross, obvious, immoral evil. 
Uh, he was very concerned about British imperialism and foreign conflicts that the government would get involved in that he felt were unjust. So he would speak out against those. But very rarely would he do this kind of thing in the pulpit. Almost always he would do it in another venue, something like the Sword and the Trowel, which was his monthly magazine. He'd have articles in there on political issues. And so, yeah, he's sometimes criticized for being politically partisan, but mainly for doing it in those other arenas, not so much in his preaching. In fact, he, he challenges his opponents at one point. He's like, I don't preach politics. He's like, uh, take all my sermons I've ever preached. They're all published. And um, I just challenge you. Can you find, you know, uh, 20 words that even look to politics, you know, outside of what the text might have suggested to me to say? But, you know, I'm not I'm not doing that. And I, I you could read in his I mean, I'm looking at his volumes now on the wall, 70 volumes I got here. He um you can read whole volumes and there's not a statement at all about politics. But in other venues, he felt, you know, if I'm writing in my magazine, I could I could write an article about the latest bill on public education and say, you know, how should Christians think about this and give his opinion freely. And so, yeah, he'd get criticism for that. He'd get heat from that from from certain quarters of the religious press and the popular press of his day. Hmm. Does he get any pushback just for his general overall vision of mercy ministry? Or is it primarily pushback is unrelated to that particular aspect, like actual doing of it? He's Um, pretty universally lauded for his approach to mercy ministry. So just two little anecdotes on that. In the downgrade controversy, as people are getting upset with him over, in the downgrade controversy, he's concerned about incursions of kind of theological liberalism in the Baptist Union. He is trying to uh, navigate that behind the scenes without having to name men publicly. They say he doesn't have a case. He thinks leadership is not being attentive to the Aikens in the camp. He resigns from the Baptist Union, and the whole controversy ensues over that. Some guys think he's being too narrow theologically, uh, but they'll say, you know, <laughs> one of his opponents says, "We love the Spurgeon of the orphanage. We wish that he would he would you know kind of take precedence over the Spurgeon of the Tabernacle." Because uh, his his good works of benevolence and charity, he was universally lauded for. And uh, the other thing I was going to say is, when you go to England today, if you you the British have commemorative blue plaques everywhere, you know, uh, you know, William Wordsworth did this here, Charles Dickens did this there, Jane Austen lived here, whatever, and they have some for Spurgeon because he was in his own day well known. And often those blue plaques will say, you know. A Baptist preacher and philanthropist, Charles Spurgeon lived here. You know, so even today he's revered for his philanthropy. And the organization that bears his name that is most visible in England today is Spurgeon's Children's Charity. Uh, there still is Spurgeon's College, that's much smaller, but the Children's Charity, just called Spurgeon's, often serves something like forty thousand kids a year or something like that. Um, yeah, so very cool. So you've written this whole book. You've dedicated years of your life to thinking about it, what are the one or two takeaways that you would say, I hope churches today can take this from Spurgeon and figure out and think about how does this apply to my own context and my own ministry? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Well, look, I I just think I, I get it. The last 10 years or so have been pretty bad on the issue of social involvement and engagement for Christians. And there's a lot of really troublesome stuff out there. I've been on this podcast, Jordan, we've talked about this. we we had a whole conversation about critical race theory and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what I, what I want to say is Christians from the very beginning, throughout the history of the Christian movement, from the New Testament age till now, have been known for being kind, compassionate, 
generous, benevolent, merciful, not just toward needy brothers and sisters in the church, but toward needy men and women in our communities. We've been known for that. And it's been one of the sweetest aspects of Christian witness throughout the world. It's the reason why your church and my church, Jordan, have tax-exempt status right now. I mean, we have been known Christian people are the people who help. They're the people who care. Spurgeon, Spurgeon will say, you know, time was whenever a, Christ, a, a person met a Christian, he knew he met a helper. He met someone who he knew would sympathetically engage in his concerns and his burdens. Now, ultimately, our goal, right, Jordan, is to spare people from everlasting suffering in hell. I believe that, 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 that it, it is no good to fill someone's belly if they're going to starve forever apart from Christ in everlasting torment. But that said, I do think one of the things that best sweetens Christian witness and endears the gospel to a watching world is when they see in Christian people the power of the grace of God in transforming us. We as Christians are not selfish. We're not self-centered. We're not uh, cold and indifferent toward other people. No, because we've experienced such lavish and extraordinary grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we stop uh, to help the distressed motorist on the side of the road. We are thinking about needy kids in our community. And how could we help vulnerable people? Because we, for the best possible reason, should engage in that kind of work. We see them as image bearers. We see them as our neighbors. We see them as uh, eternally significant and important objects of, uh, uh, of love and compassion. And so um, one thing I want to say that I hope people will get from the book is, of course, this is something we're to care about and to be about and be known for. Uh, this is something Spurgeon did, and it was obvious to him. He, he would not, much of the debates we see now would be kind of incoherent to him. I mean, if he had the context, they wouldn't be. But I'm just saying, we're so limited by our, our time and our, our, our context. But, um, but remember, Christians are those who have done good. That's who we are. We're the people who help. We're the people who engage. So I, want, I want that, that, uh, that social ethic, that public ethic to be recovered, for people to see it in Spurgeon, for people to see it in Christian history, and for people to see it in the Bible, uh, ultimately where we, we derive these principles from. But then, secondly, Jordan, I would say, I hope that people see in Spurgeon, because that's all this book is, primarily holding Spurgeon up and waving him around and saying, this is something worth emulating, to see this is a theologically reliable and a biblically sound way to think about the relationship between gospel proclamation and social ministry. Uh, I think he represents the perfect blending, biblical blending, of the imperative to minister the word and to make disciples and build churches. And this age-old question of how then does social work, benevolence, mercy, how does that play in? I think he's got it right. I think he's on to the basic biblical thing. And I think this represents a path forward, especially, Jordan, for conservative evangelicals who have been scratching their heads for a while now thinking, okay, I I don't want to go down the whole social justice warrior path. I don't want to go down the social gospel path. I'm not a woke leftist snowflake. All right, we don't want to do that kind of stuff. But isn't there a place for mercy ministry? Aren't we supposed to be like good Samaritans? I recognize love your neighbors now, this like dog whistle phrase, right? (laughs) You know, love your neighbor means wear a mask and get a shot and put your kids in public school and all this. Okay. But Jesus did say, love your neighbor as yourself. And it doesn't have to be all those other things. I'm not going to comment on that. But we are called to love our neighbors and to do good to others. And there is a way forward on this that doesn't require us to sell our souls to the the social justice movement 
or to embrace a social gospel, there's a reliable, I'll say even reformed and deeply evangelical way, confessional way even, of going about doing this that is biblically sound and theologically uh, safe for the church. And I think Spurge is doing it. Yeah. And just a reminder for all who are listening, you I just looked it up. If you go to Reformation Heritage Books website, it is available. So Alex wasn't lying. Heritagebooks.org. And when I pulled it up, I realized it's on sale right now for thirteen fifty. I mean, that's five cents per page. I've got the calculator here. There I did you go. the math. Uh, that is incredible. So even if you're like, ah, uh, you know, I don't know. You should buy it, uh, if for nothing else, because it's it's very affordable, and you're going to support someone who's doing good work. And as you were talking there, the last five minutes, I just I'm sitting there thinking and and wondering a lot of the divisions that have occurred in our own evangelical communities over the last ten years. I wonder if some of them would be healed if we were just let, let's 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 lay down our arms and say yes. We care about the gospel, and we care about serving people, uh, loving our neighbors uh, indiscriminately. And if we just said, let, let's not define everything a thousand different ways yet. Let's just say we both agree on this fundamentally. We have an imperative from our Lord to, to love our neighbor. And I wonder if that would potentially, at least for some, be like, okay, you know what? Maybe Maybe we can work together on some of these things. Maybe you aren't my enemy after all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll say, Jordan, that very point, I think that if more churches, more Christians, and more prominent evangelical leaders were like Spurgeon and were known for the kind of ministry his church was doing, I don't think we would have seen as much fracture in the evangelical world as we've seen over the last 10 years or so. I think uh, a lot of people have been pushed to the left on this stuff because of a sort of conservative, reformed, and, and right-leaning world that doesn't seem to have a very significant positive vision for how to do this. So what, what I'm trying to do with the book, it's, it's, it's a, a, I don't know, I, I'm not trying to, to say too much about my own stuff or to commend the book too, too much, but I don't know of a lot of books like it that are presenting a positive vision. And this is one of the reasons I, I'm, I'm, I, did, I, I, I prepared the book the way I did. Spurgeon, to me, represents that positive vision. And I'm sort of standing behind him on this, you know, trying to say, what did he do? Everybody loves Spurgeon, man. Uh, Presbyterians and Baptists alike, Anglicans like Spurgeon. Uh, Arminians and Calvinists like Spurgeon. Everybody likes Spurgeon. Well, how did he do this? And, and no one's going to look at Spurgeon and say, well, he was really soft on orthodoxy or conservative evangelical belief. No, he got that right, I think. I think most people would say. Um, and he was a great confessional guy, uh, confessional Baptist. Well, here he is engaging. He's at least putting his bid up there for what this could look like. And um, yeah, I'm just, the debate right now is all about what you're doing wrong. And what you're saying is what I'm doing wrong. And well, here's how the, the statement on social justice guys have messed it up. And here's how the wokey, you know, leftist people are getting it wrong. Okay, well, are there any positive cases out there that are attractive and bright that can we can talk about? So I hope this book can be a bridge builder in that respect. I hope it's a book that elder teams could read together and consider together, or book clubs can consider together. I hope folks that are currently divided on this issue of social justice and social concern 
that it can be a conversation partner and a reference point. And everyone will find things they disagree with, you know, about Spurgeon's vision. But what I like about it is it's positive and it's an effort to do this biblically and in a way that is theologically safe and sound and in a way that, that does, I think, steer us you know, forward on these issues. Yeah, that's excellent. And what's really cool, I don't know how they did this, but if you look at the cover, you see Spurgeon, and then in the silhouette, there's a picture of John Wayne. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. That's right. I will say that I was very thankful that the cover of the book is an artistic rendering of a monument that stood outside the Stockwell Orphanage that Spurgeon founded. And a uh, beautiful monument, you can find pictures of it online. And I asked uh, an artist to do kind of an artful kind of rendering of that. But yeah, John Wade did not make it into the cover, just to be completely clear. <laughs> He's not on there. Yeah, you, you guys can't watch it. You can go Google it. It's I think it's a fabulous cover. I'm just trying to trying to give him a hard time. So I'm trying to make everybody who's listening this far mad. Though, if you've listened this far, I know you know who we are and what we think, and, and you understand we, li- we like to have a little bit of good fun here, here and there. Well, and, and one thing I'll say, Jordan, along the same lines of what we're talking about, even on the endorsements, I was very pleased with how many folks were, were willing to endorse the book and... Um, uh, I will say, people go look this up for themselves. There are some people who endorse the book who have been criticized for being social justice warriors or left-leaning or part of organizations like you know, certain seminaries or the Gospel Coalition or whatever that they'll say, oh, they've, you know, they're part of the social justice movement. And it's also signed by, I think, one or two guys that signed the social justice statement and who are more well-known for showing up at conferences, more associated with that, that world. So I didn't tell everybody who was endorsing what, you know, but there is something, it seems that, you know, guys from, from either end of the spectrum, at least, maybe a more narrow spectrum, these guys aren't at the far extremes of that spectrum, but there, there is even in the endorsements, I think, a, a coming together in some ways. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, everybody, you, you've been listening, and here's what I, I tell you. I'll make sure to have a link to the book in the show notes. I'll give it the link to Reformation Heritage because I like to support them and what they're doing. Uh, if you don't know about Reformation Heritage and, and like Joel Beakey and Jonathan Beakey and all of that, I mean, they're, they're awesome. I mean, they these are. just good-hearted people. Everybody likes the Beakeys. Um, <laughs> I don't like – you can't say a bad word about them. They're just good-hearted, kind. So true. Uh, they're, they're awesome. So go support Reformation Heritage. I'm going to give you the link to buy it from them. Uh, and let me just say, working with Reformation Heritage has been a delight. I'm working on an, another book with them now. And, um, oh, it's a wonderful work. They're a great publisher, and they're putting out great stuff. So there you go. You, you, you've heard it here. Reformation Heritage is awesome. Buy stuff from them. Um, I try to do it as often as I can. And look, it says right now, I've got a little banner here, free USPS shipping on U.S. orders of $50 or more. So there, there's an excuse to, to tell your wife or or if uh, you're a female listening, uh, your husband, I'm sure your husband should be happy to buy $50 worth of books from Reformation Heritage so you can get free shipping. You're, you're being a good steward. Anyway, um, everybody's been tuning in. We appreciate you for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. As you know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hero.co.